You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn first of all to Psalm 92. Seeing that we are dealing with Lord's Day 38, the fourth commandment, it's appropriate that we also read Psalm 92, which is called the Psalm of Song for the Sabbath day. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord. How profound your thoughts The senseless man does not know, fools do not understand. That though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. But you, O Lord, are exalted forever. For surely your enemies, O Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured upon me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Proclaiming, the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Then we turn as well to the last two verses of Isaiah 58, where the prophet writes, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, and from doing as you please on my holy day, If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes this in Lord's Day 38 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 103 on page 518. What does God require in the fourth commandment? First, that the ministry of the gospel and the schools be maintained. And that especially on the day of rest, I diligently attend the church of God to hear God's word, to use the sacraments, to call publicly upon the Lord, and to give Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that all the days of my life I rest from my evil works. Let the Lord work in me through his Holy Spirit, and so begin in this life, the eternal Sabbath. Thus far. After the proclamation of the gospel, let's respond with the singing of hymn 7, the fifth stanza.
Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have just read together the Catechism's explanation of the Fourth Commandment. And after doing so, you may well be left wondering about two things. And the first thing is this, does this commandment still apply to us today? And why do I ask that? Well, because it speaks about the Sabbath day, but we do not observe the Sabbath day as such. Today, it is Sunday, the first day of a new week. It's not Sabbath or Saturday, the seventh or last day of the week. So what we have here are different days. Sabbath and Sunday happen at different times. And in addition, they both stress or they highlight different things. The one is often tied to rest. The other is most commonly tied to resurrection. And so where does that leave us? Can it be that one of the commandments has become obsolete and non-applicable? Should we perhaps speak of the nine Commandments instead of the Ten Commandments. Another thing that may leave us wondering has to do with the way in which the Heidelberg Catechism tries to explain and apply this fourth commandment. Notice it really says nothing as such about the Sabbath day. It doesn't actually explain the commandment. It doesn't tell us how it functioned in the Old Testament or did not function. And, of course, it does mention that word Sabbath, but it does so in connection with eternity and speaks about the eternal Sabbath. And at the same time, what does it say has more to do with the New Testament Sunday than it does with the Old Testament Lord's Day or Sabbath It even mentions all kinds of things that we should do on the Sunday or on the Lord's Day. And meanwhile, it doesn't say anything about what we should not do, except, of course, that we are to rest from our evil works. So where does this leave us? Should we perhaps petition the next General Synod and ask it to strike a committee to come up with a better explanation of Lord's Day 38? Or should we just live with what we have and sort of consign Lord's Day 38 to the category of the the not-too-great and needs more work kind of thing? Or should we dig a little deeper and try harder to find some merit, even a little bit of merit, in the way in which the Catechism treats the Fourth Commandment? Well, beloved, this afternoon we're going to try to follow the third approach, which is to dig a little deeper and try a little harder. And to that end, I'd like to preach to you on the following theme. Remember Sabbath. We're going to look, first of all, at the reasons for it. Secondly, the restoration of it. And finally, the relevance in it for us today. Well, beloved, before we turn to the Catechism's explanation of the Fourth Commandment, we need to do some digging and some rummaging around. Quite simply, we need to ask ourselves this question, why did the Lord God give this particular commandment to Israel? 
Now, in phrasing it like that, I do not mean to exclude the fact that this commandment rests on an earlier divine pattern or divine example. What am I referring to? Well, to what we read, for example, in Genesis 2, the verses 2 and 3, where it says, By the seventh day the Lord had finished the work he had been doing, and on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating what he had done. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that God did all of his creational work over six days and that he chose the seventh day to rest. It tells us that God chooses to approach time in terms of cycles of seven days in which six days are for laboring and one day is for resting. And it tells us as well, with respect to the seventh day, that God did two things. He he blessed it, and he made it holy. Now, what do those two things mean? He blessed it, and he made it holy. For one, they must surely mean that God regarded the last or the seventh day as a special and different kind of day. And at the same time, they must also surely mean that he wants this day to be special, not just for himself, but for all of mankind. Why bother to tell us that he's blessed it and made it holy if it has nothing to do with us? If God is the only one keeping this day special and holy, then why does he bother to have this written down in his words so that we could read it? And besides, since God transcends time, why should he suddenly start keeping time all for himself? Now, beloved, the bottom line is that there is a pattern here. A pattern, you can say, for the house and the well-being of all mankind, God rests on the seventh day, and he wants man to follow his example. But that still leaves the question, can we speak of a commandment here? Well, that may be saying too much, seeing that God nowhere uses that kind of language in the book of Genesis But nevertheless, later on he does. When he gives his law, for example, to the children of Israel, he makes the matter of resting on the Sabbath day a clear and precise matter of the fourth commandment. And so it would seem that we are moving here from creation pattern or creation rhythm to a Sinitic command. Whereas God once set the example, he now establishes the ordinance. Israel must rest on the Sabbath or the seventh day. But why? Why is God so insistent upon this? Well, the first and the most obvious reason for this is that Israel needs this. It needs a day off. It needs a day of refreshment, you can say. 
Literally, the word Sabbath, as we mentioned already, means rest and describes a situation in which work, chores, tasks, duties, responsibilities cease and in which calm, quiet, peace and tranquility begin to prevail. And at the same time, the word rest is also connected to the word nefesh in Hebrew, which means to breathe. It's also the word from which we get the the word soul. And thereby it is telling us that resting is not just about doing nothing, but it's also about recharging one's batteries and getting ready and prepared for a new week of challenges. And you know, that particular meaning is also illustrated in the case of David who's fleeing from Absalom. It says in 2 Samuel 16, 14, And the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. In other words, there David enjoyed a Sabbath. So Sabbath means rest. And it's for resting. But then notice that this rest and this resting, interestingly enough, is meant for for every creature. Another striking feature of the fourth commandment, at least as we have it in Exodus 20, is that it is so broad and so comprehensive. Parents, children, servants, animals, even foreigners. Everyone is to rest. There's no discrimination here. This is to be a universal benefit. And why is that so? Rest is for everyone because everyone needs it. Not one of God's creatures can continue to live well and function effectively without rest. God knows this. And by means of his very own example... He wants man to realize this as well. Although I wonder whether we do realize this as well. In some ways and in some things we often try to be wiser than God and surely here also in connection with this commandment is one of them. We think that we can work, work and work and that it will do us no harm. How foolish it is to disregard the wisdom of our Creator. So we need to learn, beloved. We need to learn about the meaning as well as the beauty of rest and refreshment. So you can say the Sabbath, first of all, is for resting. It's also for celebration. I'm not sure where the idea came from that this day should be a drab day, a dull day, or a boring day. But in any case, be assured, it didn't come from the Israelites. And that's easy to prove. We've read together Psalm 92, a song for the Sabbath. And what does it say? It's good to praise the Lord, make music to your name, O Most High, to proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. 
And you may have noticed as well in Isaiah 58 how the Sabbath is to be a delight, a treasure, an oasis for the people of God. And you know, there's even a Jewish folk song which says, On the Sabbath, every Jew is a king, regardless. And he feels like a new man. So, beloved, the Sabbath is all about celebration, too. And if you ask the celebration of what, why well, you can say, the celebration especially of God's abundant goodness to his people. Sabbath recalls how God, for example, according to Deuteronomy 5, 5, in connection with his commandment, liberated the children of Israel of bondage in Egypt. Sabbath is about rejoicing in God's covenant with his people. Sabbath is about reveling in his love and care, his faithfulness and mercy. Sabbath is about celebrating the wonder of God and the wonder of his works. So Sabbath is for refreshment, it's for celebration. It's also for something else. It's for worship. And how do we know this? Well, we know this from the fact that Israel is repeatedly told that on this day they are to assemble, to gather, to congregate together. Leviticus 23.8 And on the seventh day hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. And you know, those words of Leviticus 23, verse 8, they run like a refrain through the Old Testament. On the seventh day, you hold a sacred assembly and you do no work. The Sabbath is to be a day in which man rests in order that he has the time and the opportunity to worship the Lord is God. So why was Israel told to keep Sabbath? To be refreshed, to celebrate, and to worship. Now, beloved, all of that, of course, paints a nice and rosy picture. But nevertheless, the truth of the matter is that the reality was neither so nice nor so rosy. First, there is the fact that Israel often had a hard time observing the Sabbath day. Read, for example, the minor prophets especially, and you'll come across the fact that time and time again, they lament the fact that Israel fails to observe the Sabbath, but instead is busy abusing it. The people often refused to rest because they wanted to make more money. Landowners frequently refuse to allow their servants as well as their animals to rest. And the land, too, was refused its rest. And along with the refusal to rest, there was also an absence of worship. How can you worship when you're working? How can you turn your heart toward God and when your mind is still on your job? 
How can you rejoice and sing about his goodness when your mouth is busy making deals, ordering around servants and venting its frustrations? In the end, beloved Israel turned its back on Sabbath. Do you know why they were sent into exile? Do you know why they were sent into exile for 70 long years? 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that the land needed to make up for all the Sabbaths it had missed. They were sent away for 70 years to make up for the shortfall. Multiply the days of a year times 70. And you can see there's a lot of Sabbath catching up to do. But you know, if Israel of old had trouble keeping the Sabbath, it needs to be said that Israel in the New Testament had a tough time not keeping Sabbath, at least formally. You might wonder, how come the change? How come that the pendulum, if you look at the Old Testament into the New Testament, how come the pendulum shifts from violating Sabbath to rigorously trying to keep it? Well, it had everything to do with overreacting. You know, after the remnant returned from exile, and, and already before they returned from exile, they knew that Sabbath was a problem. And there arose among them this kind of chant of never, ever, ever again. Never again would the people be sent into exile for Sabbath violation. So how do you prevent that from happening again? It's called rule upon rule, precept upon precept, regulation upon regulation. It's called policing the Sabbath. And you see that in action in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. The people were determined not to commit the mistakes of the past. And the Pharisees were there to make sure, doubly sure, that it didn't happen. But beloved, I ask you, what happens to a people when the reason for Sabbath observation is based not on celebration, but on regulation? Then the joy and the spirit Go out of the day. And legalism begins to reign. And instead of Sabbath being made for man, man is made and molded for the Sabbath. Everything gets reversed and turned upside down. And that's the kind of world that our Lord Jesus Christ stepped into. A world of distortion of unhappiness, of legalistic burdens, of overreaction. 
And what is one of the first things that he does in such a world? He reclaims, reforms and reinstates the Sabbath as it was meant to be. He says to the Pharisees, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that's his way of saying that he has power over it. That he determines its true character. That he rekindles its true intent. That he corrects its abuse. That he has the power because he's the boss and the master. He's the son of man. And why did he go out of his way to do so many miracles, especially on the Sabbath day? Was it because he was so insensitive to all the scruples of the Pharisees? No, beloved, it was because he wanted to return the Sabbath to its original intent. He wanted it to be once again what it had been and was supposed to be in the Old Testament. A day of refreshment, a day of celebration, and a day of worship. True worship, heart worship, spontaneous worship. And not cold conformity. And maybe that explains why the church, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, moves it all to a new day. You know, it's hard to rehabilitate a day that's been so terribly abused by both lawlessness and legalism. So why not a new day? Why not a new day symbolizing a whole new beginning? Why not a new day with even more refreshment, more celebration, and more worship? Because the great resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, has been poured into it. And therefore, why not call it the Lord's Day? Do you see what's happening here, beloved? And you perhaps also begin to see why it is that the Heidelberg Catechism takes the approach that it does to the fourth commandment. For notice what the Catechism does. It doesn't speak about Old Testament abuse. It doesn't speak about New Testament abuse. No, it highlights two of the hallmarks of the Sabbath, worship and celebration. It speaks about the ministry of the gospel. And what's the gospel? Good news. Fantastic tidings. Joyful tidings. The gospel at bottom is all about celebration. Therefore, it speaks about the ministry of the gospel. And it speaks about the schools where the preachers of the gospel are educated and trained for the gospel ministry. And it stresses the need for diligent worship or involvement. And it lists the basic activities or the verbs of worship. Hearing, using, calling, and giving. And it mentions the basic elements of worship, the word, the sacraments, prayer, praise, and offering. 
You see, taking its cue from the Old Testament and the New, the catechism insists that the heart and the center of the Sabbath and the Lord's Day are the same. They both have everything to do with worship. They both call for the coming together of God's people to praise their maker. And if you ask why did they do so, well, you can also say because worship lies at the heart and the center of being the people of God. More than anything else, what is it that makes us who we are? What makes us so special? What accounts for our uniqueness? What what binds us together as a people of God? And I would say it's especially in more ways than one, it's our worship. It's our coming together Sunday after Sunday or Lord's Day after Lord's Day to praise, to confess, to petition, to listen to the same God. And Father, it's our celebration of the same mercies and blessings. It's our listening and heeding the same word of God. It's our participation in the same sacraments. For the people of God to be and to remain the people of God, worship is an optional. It's a holy must. It's a burning desire. It's a divine compulsion. Diligently, not casually, I attend and participate because earnestly I long to grow in grace and faith. Beloved, nothing beats hearing the gospel and singing God's praises. Yes, and to achieve that, you could say we also need rest. It's interesting, the catechism doesn't say that you can't work, can't shop, sell, or buy on the Sunday or the Lord's Day. And I think the reason why it doesn't bother to say these things is because... Well, why not? Why does the Catechism not list all of those don'ts? Why does the Belgian Confession not list those don'ts? Why does the Canon of Dort not list those don'ts? Do you know? I think it's because it's so obvious. If you're busy working, then refreshment, celebration, and worship are soon out the door. How can you work and feel refreshed? How can you work and celebrate? How can you work and worship? You need to make a choice. You can't have it both ways. You need to make a choice, that is, if you have that possibility. As you know, this coming week I'm supposed to be going to China again. And when you go to China, 
and you look at the life of the believers there, one of the things that you notice is that in many cases they are scrounging around trying to create or to find some time, some space for worship. In China, everybody works on Sunday because if you don't work, you get fired. And if you get fired, you don't eat. So what does the church do? Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, early in the morning. It's always grasping around for these times and these moments. Desperately trying to create time and space. So can they be refreshed? So they can celebrate, so they can worship. We in North America, and we North American Christians are a spoiled bunch. We have all of this time on our hands and so much of it we squander. And then sometimes when the elders call the congregation to come together twice on the Lord's Day, the complaints can be heard from some people. We have no time. We're tired. Once is enough. Where does it say in the Bible? Twice. Come on. How immature. How totally insensitive. The Chinese look down at us, or they don't look down at us. They sometimes look at us in amazement. If you have the treasure of this day, why wouldn't you embrace it and use it to the maximum? Why do you argue about minutes and hours? We can't even find them. You have them in abundance. Another word to worship, and we can worship. And that's a privilege and an opportunity beyond compare. So let's not be immature about it. Or foolish. And let's also realize that here there is a deeper concern. Notice the Catechism does talk about rest. Lord's Day 38, the second part. And you'll notice, and that's interesting, it says there is something more important than physical rest. And sometimes we get too hung up on physical rest. Because there is another form of rest that's even more vital and basic and fundamental. And it's called resting from sin. It's called letting the Spirit work in you. It's God getting a head start on the eternal Sabbath for truly one day. We won't have to find ways to be refreshed, to celebrate, or to worship. One day our work, our business, our money-making will not interfere with the joys of the Sabbath. Because one day, it's going to be Sabbath every day. Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath.
and he'll make it so. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.